A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheimbare Brüder in America. So tausend Schafes at the guitar. Out of the 24 who were killed, were Americans who had come to learn in heaven. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late. And it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. To Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And this episode in our ongoing series of Great American Jewish Cities is devoted to Los Angeles. And this episode has been generously sponsored Le'ili Nishmas Chaim Ben Maisha, one of the pioneer Holocaust survivors who came to Los Angeles and reestablished Yiddishkeit, whose first yard site was just a couple of days ago. At the onset, at the outset, excuse me, of this uh, episode, I want to give a big thank you to LA native and LA legend Aaron Katz, uh, who's amazingly gracious both with his time and sharing an enormous amount of information and stories and background and personalities about LA. Uh, so much so that I'm not going to even get to half of what he uh, discussed with me the other day. Um, so a lot of the information comes from him, and also to Naftali Kasurla, who was able to provide some specific information about uh, some L.A. personalities. So before we get to Los Angeles, just in uh, in passing, a, a tribute to the great Telzer Rosh Hashiva, Reb Chaim Dave Keller, who just passed away recently. Make note of that uh, amazing uh, person and Torah leader and Chicago and beyond, and the entire United States through the Agudas Yisrael of America and other organizations he was involved with, uh, in a certain way, uh, last of his of his generation in in uh, Tells Chicago, um, you know, starts off in Tells Cleveland and ascent to to the Tells Chicago, which had been started only a year or two earlier before by his brother-in-law Rav Chaim, Chaim Levine and Rav Chaim Schmelzer. And uh, he joins the staff and and uh, just stays there for pretty much forever and uh, builds up the place and very influential and very uh, dynamic and powerful leader, outspoken on many topics and definitely a very uh, special personality. I heard much from him about him from his younger brother-in-law, Rabbi Beryl Wine, who's still with us. May he live and be well. And um, the closeness, the family, they're all married to Levine's and uh, the closeness within the family, and of course, beyond. So, we're going to move on to, so of course, says Chusei Agenaleinu, and his memory should be for a blessing, but we're going to move on at this point to 
talk a little bit about Elena. As it happens, the history of Jewish LA has been extensively covered by two very competent uh, other historians of, in general, and especially of LA history, Rabbi Einhorn and uh, Penny Dunner, and definitely uh, advisable to listen to what they have to say, and they, can, they go into much more extensive detail than uh, what, what I'm going to do here in this short little episode. So, Rabbi, um, I think David Einhorn and Rapini Dunner, they're both available online. You can see their lectures on the topic, and they've extensively covered it. What I'm going to try to do is give a bit of another angle, uh, and of course, an more overall picture. Um, several years ago, I was talking to a elderly, um, somewhat stereotypical New York uh, Jew, and I and I uh, mentioned just in the sentence that I was using, I mentioned the word awesome. And he turns to me in kind of this like grumpy New York face. He says to me, are you from California? So I said, absolutely not. I'm Israeli and I originally come from New York. He says, well, you used the word awesome. So I said, but listen to how I used it. New Yorkers insert the letter W into almost every word, into fall, coffee, dog, and of course, into the word awesome, which actually has a W, I used it as awesome. So I obviously can't come from California. I would have said awesome or something like that. So what's your issue? So he says, I only knew, I knew that in LA, they use the word awesome. No one in New York uses the word awesome. So that was the first time I ever heard that. I don't know if it's true or not. But I do have a personal connection to LA. Um, two uncles there and, and uh, great, awesome uncles. And, uh, and I visited them there. So I got to know the town a little bit. And, um, and it's an awesome place. It's a, it's a, I love LA. So it'll be fun to talk about its history uh, a little bit here on this uh, podcast. Um, it's it's the second largest Jewish community in the United States and one of the largest in the world after Tel Aviv, Yerushalayim, New York. Uh, it's probably probably right up there after that, and uh, and a very important and prestigious and historic Jewish community. In in eighteen fifty five, already in the mid nineteenth century, there's Jewish pioneers arrive in the area. Uh, and they buy a piece of land for the first Jewish cemetery. So they have the Jews there, the original Jews there, are the same time when Jews are arriving in California. We know that California develops in the 1840s, and especially um, with the uh, San Francisco uh, area develops Northern California by the gold rush of 1849. So California in general, Southern California lags behind. Uh, San Francisco, definitely that area. Northern California developed much much more during those years, but already then in Southern California there were uh, settlers in general arriving, and among them, of course, uh, Jews. Now that that first Jewish cemetery, that land for the first Jewish cemetery that they buy, is now in the middle, smack in the middle of downtown uh, Los Angeles, and it's right outside the uh, the Dodgers Stadium parking lot. So right outside this historic baseball stadium is a little plaque right outside the parking lot. One of the areas of the parking lot is this little plaque that it was the first presence, Jewish presence, the Hebrew Benevolent Society, which was the first Jewish charity, and they buy the first plot of land which um, which belongs to the Jewish community for a, for a Jewish cemetery. So that's 
That's the the original Jewish settlement. Now, what happens is is that it uh, it develops slowly, quite slowly, over the 19th century. There's a fellow by the name of uh, Isaiah Hellman who comes to LA in 1859 from Germany, and he helps build the city in general. Um, a, a German Jew during the great uh, during the German Jewish immigration of the 1840s, 50s, 60s. And he builds L.A. as we know it. He builds the first trolley, one of the first banks, which eventually becomes Wells Fargo. He's a trustee at the university, trustee at the University of California. He's also a, a major investor in, in Los Angeles's water, gas, and electricity companies. And most importantly, for that period of time, he helps bring the Southern Pacific Railroad to Los Angeles in 1876, which ends the isolation of the region and allows it to develop. And here we come, um, the beginning at the turn of the century and really the beginning of the 20th century, we come to the most important and the most uh, well-known reason why the L.A. Jewish community is known known for, and I'll introduce that topic with another story. There's, on my trips to Poland, Eastern Europe, we usually stop in Warsaw, and we, on our way to Reb Chaim Brisker's uh, kever, we pass by an area with some very prominent gravestones, and the groups, no matter how yeshivish they are, they always ask me for an explanation of of what uh, um, of what the, these prominent graves are in the section just before the turn-off to Reb Chaim Brisker. Um, and, uh, and then it's it. And whose yard it was just uh, yesterday. And, um, and sometimes the Rebbe on the trip is not happy that I stop there and give this explanation, but it's an area that 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 is the graves graves the grave section of the Yiddish theater in uh, in Warsaw, and one of the most prominent. The central grave belongs to Esther Kaminska. Esther Kaminska was the founder, one of the most famous celebrities, one of the greatest uh, um, architects of the Yiddish theater in Warsaw. And I explained to the group that Esther Kaminska and the Yiddish theater in Warsaw, and at the same time, it's parallel in Vilna were the fathers of, uh, of Yiddish theater. And that Yiddish theater eventually moves to New York across the ocean. Very, very close connection of the Yiddish theater to the, to the early years of Broadway. And of course, the early years of Broadway lead into the film industry in Hollywood, which all those stages, the Yiddish theater and Broadway in Hollywood, were all by, built by immigrant Jews. So here we were standing in the Warsaw Jewish Cemetery by Esther Kaminska, we're looking at the ancestor of Hollywood and the entire film industry. And then I add that perhaps the Academy Awards should come should have a new Sgula that I came up with, that before the Academy Awards ceremony, they should send 10 or 10 representatives to pray at Esther Kaminska's gravesite in Warsaw and maybe 40 days in a row or whatever, you know, whatever parameters of the Sgula we could come up with. And this will be a Sgula to win an Academy Award at the ceremony. So far, no one's taken me up on this new Sgula, which I think would go very well. But that brings us right into the topic of how Hollywood was really the beginning of the Jewish community in L.A. and how Jews were the foundation of Hollywood, which is a fascinating story, because why did that happen? Why was it specifically Jews? Um, All the major five studios of the Golden Age and, and the minor three of the Golden Age. You know, MGM, Warner Brothers, Fox, Paramount, Universal, Columbia, everything was all Jews, the directors, the screenwriters, the producers. Why 
Why was that? So you have to understand that the Jewish immigrants, first of all, many of them, like I said, had experience with the Yiddish theater, had experience with with um, with that type of production. They're also looking to break into um, industry in the United States, and many of the uh, financial in the financial district in, in in New York at the time, and in other places in Boston, was very waspy still. There was many, 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 uh, you know, and if, if you're in part of the working class, you went right into the textile industry, um, which was developing at the time. But for people looking to get into um, the financial houses, the banking, uh, any, 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 uh, any of the uh, white collar um, industries, many of it was either openly closed to Jews or there was this hostility of the old waspy class that existed in the United States at the time. And the easiest place for immigrant Jews to go of that class was into a brand new industry that was just starting. And uh, the film industry was brand new. Now, on the East Coast, originally the original Hollywood was at Fort Lee, New Jersey, but that ended up being also a not good atmosphere, not because of, of anti-Semitism, but rather because Thomas Edison owned all the... Um, patents to film at the time, but we're not going to get into the whole history of Hollywood. I just want to get to the Jewish angle. But that's how it ends up going to L.A. And that's how it's many. It's one of the reasons it's many Jews who join. It's also the Jewish creativity and the idea that the Jews came to this new country to find a, a new culture to be a part of. And there's a lot of struggles, financial struggles, cultural struggles, assimilation struggles. There's, like I said, uh, you know, a certain element of anti-Semitism. And here they can create an alternative reality. They can be the one who are the purveyors of culture that they're inventing, essentially, through Hollywood. Um, and just, just to mention a few names uh, of, of these Jewish Hollywood personalities of those early days. Carl Lamel was a German Jew who was the founder of Universal Studios. Adolf Zucker, who was a Hungarian Jew, was the founder of Paramount. William Fox, who was another Hungarian Jew, was obviously Fox, later 20th Century Fox. The four Warner brothers, Sam, Jack, Albert, and Harry, who were born in America, but the parents were from New- from Poland. They're the Warner brothers. Marcus Lowe, who owned the chain of theaters, was born in New York City to parents from Germany and Austria, together with Louis Meyer, who was born in the Ukraine, and Samuel Goldwyn, who was born in Warsaw to Hasidic parents, they, together, at different stages, were the founders of MGM, uh, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. Uh, David Barnoff, who was born in Belarus, in a little shtetl near Minsk, was the founder of RKO. Harry Cohn, who was born in New York City to parents from Germany and Russia, together with Joe Brandt, who was born in New York City to Jewish parents, they were the founders of Columbia. The only studio that wasn't, uh, that wasn't uh, Jewish at that time was Walt Disney's studio. So that's, and later on, animation, Jewish anime, uh, DreamWorks, which competed with Disney, was three Jews, Jeff Katzenberg, David Geffen, and Spielberg, much later on. So yeah, they made up for it. Uh, but, but, uh, you know, beyond the studios, you had in, in, in the financiers, the producers, the directors, the screenwriters, the agents, the lawyers, and some actors. There were no stuntmen, though. No stuntmen were Jews. That's, that was, that's not a Jewish profession. And some of the famous ones were people like Ben Hecht, who's today is remembered as as the author of Perfidy about the Kastner trial. But uh, what he's what he was more famous for was being one of the greatest screenwriters in Hollywood history. Or people like Kirk Douglas, who was you know just died last year, was like a hundred and something years old. He was uh, one of the great actors of the uh, 
of the uh, of the golden age, and he was born Isser Danielevich, and his father was sold caps. Um, you know, the 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 amount of Jews in in Hollywood at that time. Now there was a shul, a Reformed temple on Wilshire Boulevard. It's called the Wilshire Boulevard. Temple still exists. And this was the movie Mogul Shul. There was a very interesting rabbi there, Rabbi Edgar Magnin, who was quite a personality. He was the rabbi there for 69 years. They called him the John Wayne of rabbis, or the rabbi to the stars. So, and moving on to more modern times, you have uh, Steven Spielberg and his contribution to Holocaust Remembrance, which it's, 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 it's absolutely immeasurable. And I'm not even talking about the production of Schindler's List, which... It didn't did much for Holocaust remembrance. I'm talking about what he did as a result of Schindler's List in founding the Shoah Foundation and assembling over 50,000 testimonies. Amazing wealth of research. And any Holocaust testimony uh, uh, is inspired by him. Even Yad Vashem, uh, which, which predated him, but they greatly expanded as a result of his activities. And... Um, the amount of Holocaust testimony and as a result, Holocaust remembrance and research that's available due to Spielberg and, uh, and his uh, vision uh, through film and recording uh, audio and visual testimonies. Of course, we have Jewish mobsters in L.A., the most famous of whom was Mickey Cohn, who came from an Orthodox family in Brownsville. He worked as a gangster in Cleveland and in New York and in Chicago with Al Capone. And then he was shipped off to L.A. to work with Bugsy, Bugsy Siegel, when he was work, when uh, Bugsy was working on the Flamingo Hotel in Las Vegas, and he was actually pretty upset that the, about the mob decision to whack uh, Bugsy Siegel. Um, he later, Mickey Cohen later worked with Ben Hecht to raise money for the Irgun for Israel's independence, and he hosted a parlor meeting, and he had everyone who attended the parlor meeting uh, say what, how much they're going to give, and Mickey Cohen would assess. Uh, some of these people and say, I, I don't think you're giving enough. You should really be giving some more. And when a mobster tells that to you, you definitely give more. So it was one of the most successful parlor meetings in history for the uh, uh, nascent state of Israel. Um, so and he, uh, he, he was prominent on the L.A. mob scene. So pre-World War II, as you could see, there were not too many religious Jews. There was Rabbi Neches, who was a big name, uh, you know, at a had a shul um, in Orthodox, at the beginnings of the Orthodox community before the war. Um, but it was a lot of reform, like I said, Edgar Magnin and the Wilshire Boulevard temp- Temple. Um, there was a religious community in Boyle Heights and West Adams. Rabbi Asher Zilberstein um, was a rabbi there, again, kept on into the post-war. And other rabbis like Rabbi Chaim Uri Etner, who was heavily involved with Kashrus and developing L.A. Kashrus. Rabbi Asher Zilberstein was there from the 1920s, and his his um, he was one of the earliest Orthodox rabbis in the area. He was the one actually in the post-war in the uh, he, in the 1960s. He brought Ramaisha Feinstein to Los Angeles. The only time Ramaisha ever visited L.A. They had Ramaisha Feinstein Day in L.A. and and he came out to visit there, and that was a very prominent event in L.A. Uh, Jewish history. So really, when the Orthodox Jewish community commences more in the post-war. There's a tremendous influx of refugees, and the Frum community starts the, at that time around Fairfax in the Pico-Robertson area. It's a large survivor, Holocaust survivor community, which I'm going to get back to. It was primarily uh, Holocaust survivors who had lost everything during the war, and they go on to build 
up the LA Jewish Orthodox Jewish community, um, modern Orthodox um, in the 1950s and 60s. Um, the Yeshivish Orthodox comes much later, but um, and also New York transports people who are moving out west who are looking for something different and uh, going to the West Coast. Uh, so the most prominent rabbi at that time was an incredible individual named Rabbi Simon Dolgan. And he um, grew up in Chicago, goes to um, Hebrew Theological College, which is Skokie, and he becomes a young rabbi in in a small shul called Beth Jacob. And he moves it from West Adams to Beverly Hills, and he begins a long battle to install a mechitza. You have to understand, again, I emphasize this in many, many of these city episodes, and I can't emphasize it enough. There's the inside New York City in places like Williamsburg and Borough Park is developing at the time, Crown Heights and other neighborhoods in, in New York City in the 1950s and 60s in 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 clannish um, ghetto neighborhoods. Um, Yiddishkeit is flourishing, flourishing. Yeshivas are being are, are developing and the and the, uh, the Hasidic Rebbes that had come on after the war, and very, very rich uh, Jewish life. And it was really outside of New York where orthodoxy was disappearing. The conservative movement was on a huge rise. The symbol of that became the Mechitza. And there were these almost unknown or almost anonymous rabbis out in the field, out in the desert, and they're fighting tooth and nail to preserve or build from scratch Jewish traditional life, orthodoxy. And Rabbi Simon Dolgan definitely was one of the uh, most prominent of those rabbis. And he fights literally for years and years to install and to keep the mechitza there. Uh, Beth Jacob later on becomes uh, had noteworthy rabbis like Rabbi Maurice Lamb, the brother of Rabbi Norman Lamb and Abner Weiss. More recently, Rabbi Stephen Weil and Rabbi Kalman Tup, a whole long list of uh, prominent rabbis. So Rabbi Dolgan, who, together with uh, with other Skokie alumni, um, Rabbi Sugarman and Rabbi Nachum Gadisman, they they are there to, they come to L.A. in the 1950s, and they develop Jewish life. They start the Hillel Day School, which was affiliated with Beth Jacob, and, um, and that's the first... Orthodox Hebrew Day School, which becomes the for the future for Jewish education in that uh, in that area. Now, Dolgan himself was a big Zionist. He corresponded with Ben Gurion, and he later on makes Aliyah and moves to Israel in 1971, where he builds a Beth Jacob Shul in the brand new neighborhood after the Six Day War called Ramat Eshkol. Now, that Beit Yaakov Shul, which is named for the same Shul of Beth Jacob in L.A., was built by Rabbi Dolgan, where he remained the rabbi there until he passed away. So when I lived in Ramat Eshkol for five years, I lived on Paran, to, you know, right down the block from the Shul. That's where I daven, a beautiful Shul, and a historic Shul connected to the early days uh, in L.A. So I had a part of that. I, I daven in the Shul for several years. Now, uh, Rabbi Dolgan had... Uh, uh, he worked with everyone in the Jewish community. He worked to install kosher kitchens in local hotels. He worked with the Federation. He he um, he worked with. Uh, he helped Rabbi uh, Bar Shlomo Kunin from Chabad, which I'm going to get to soon. Uh, set up shop there when he arrived uh, in L.A. and um, to have the the uh, school going and every, everything he did with tremendous mysterious nefesh in the early years. And um, and then in his later years in Israel, during the Yom Kippur War, which is two years after he arrived, he went up to a bunker on the Golan Heights to be there in 
with the soldiers, with uh, with uh, his former cantor, Benjamin Glickman, who was an Israeli citizen and had returned to Israel to serve in the Israeli army. So he was in a bunker in the Golan Heights. We had been the cantor in Beth Jacob previously. And Rabbi Dolgan goes up to that bunker and he distributes candy and nuts to the soldiers on the front lines. This is a, a person who is a, a, an amazingly dedicated rabbi and individual. And uh, like I said, together with Rabbi Nachum Gadisman, builds the Hill uh, Academy Day School. Rabbi Nachum Gadisman's son, Rabbi Shlomo Gadisman, has the yeshiva in Calabascus, so the L.A. education uh, tradition continues in the family. Now, the Rambam, Rambam was the first Orthodox high school, which lasted for a couple of, it lasted for a few decades. It closes down in 1978, just when Eula uh, opens up, uh, Yeshiva University of Los Angeles, which is, which is a high school, and it built up on that. And interesting, in the context of, of Rambam, one of the early great uh, G'dayli Yisrael, one of the only G'dayli Yisrael who lived in, in uh, Los Angeles was Reb Simcha Wasserman, the son of Reb Chana Wasserman. And, and uh, also he reached out, he was involved in Kirov there, before it was, also before it was invented, in, with the community and with his, through his schools, which I'll get back to soon. And Reb Simcha one time was visited by a group of boys from the Rambam High School on Purim. And uh, they were a bit rowdy, and uh, and they got things got a little bit out of control. And uh, when he asked them which school they're from, they said from the Rambam school. So he said, "Oh, this, that's a Shvera Rambam." So that's a that's uh, that was the Shvera Rambam of that of that time. Now, so the, see, um, the the uh, the 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 Orthodox community is developing. Most of Rabbi Dolgan's supporters drove to shul on Shabbos. So Rabbi Dolgan is is being the architect of, of orthodoxy. He was involved with the Bnei Akiva, which in L.A., in Los Angeles, was huge at the time. It saved, it saved youth for orthodoxy in the 1950s and 60s, and, and, all, and always uh, Los Angeles has been a very Zionist city, um, even amongst Hollywood stars and Jewish gangsters. Um, interesting that the, uh, at a lot of Israelis ended up settling down in Los Angeles, and unfortunately... The, in a tragic way, the uh, the um, terrorist attack uh, at the L- at the El Al counter in two thousand and two, July fourth, um, which um, which killed a Jew and um, injured several. It happened in L.A. as well. Um, so you have um, Eula, which began in the first Marvin Heyer, who was a rabbi in Vancouver at the time. He becomes a principal. He becomes involved in, U- in building Eula. The first principal is actually Ramesha Meiselman, who, with his YU connections, was able to become moved in from Chicago to become the first uh, principal. And he was there in building up Eula at that time to be the main and primary Orthodox Yeshiva High School. Eventually, Marvin Heyer moves on to build the Wies- Simon Wiesenthal Center, and later on the Museum of Tolerance, continuing. L.A. legacy of Holocaust remembrance. It was very prominent till today. I spoke to Marvin Heyer once, had the privilege of speaking to him for a couple hours, and he described to me the goals of the Simon Wiesenthal Center and in Holocaust research and in Nazi hunting and a Museum of Tolerance and Jewish history and very interesting and an important institution. Um, so Eula kept on producing prominent alumni in the class of 2000, they had uh, Eitan Katz, who eventually becomes a singer, and Ben Shapiro doing whatever he's doing. And um, 
So other shuls develop uh, over time. You have the young Israel, young Israel of Century City, which is not in Century City, just like the young Israel of Beverly Hills, which is not in Beverly Hills. But in the young Israel of Century City, Rabbi Lazar Muskin, um, who's the rabbi there for well over 35 years, he was the president of the RCA, and he comes from a famous rabbinical family. Father was a rabbi in Cleveland. His grandfather was a rabbi in Chicago, so he moves out further west, and and a also a builder of uh, orthodoxy in the area. Of course, beyond um, L.A., out into the valley, you have Amek and you have Valley Torah. Uh, you have the Chavetz Chaim Yeshiv in the late 1970s, uh, Rafi Butler, who, famous in his own right, but also famous as the father of the uh, legendary researcher and activist Menachem Butler, who's and and uh, he's involved. Uh, so Rafi Butler's involved with building the Chavetz Chaim Yeshiva. But a prominent Rebbe in the early years was A.B. Rottenberg. Before he went into music in Toronto, he was a Rebbe in the Yeshiva there. Rabbi Silberger, um, all these prominent young Chavetz Chaim alumni who build uh, who built up um, uh, Torah in the Valley and influenced the Valley Jewish community. Um, but what I want to get to is several prominent individuals who were Holocaust survivors who had lost everything. And these lay activists who eventually became prominent, wealthy businessmen in L.A., they were the ones who, who caused, they were the catalyst for this all to happen. I'll start with a fellow by the name of Sam Menlo. Sam Menlo was a survivor, went through Auschwitz and other uh, camps. He grew up in a Vizhnitzer Chesidisha home in, uh, in, in, in Romania. And he, and he uh, moves, you know, takes quite a while, he's in Switzerland and then he, New York, and then eventually comes in the 1950s to Los Angeles. He builds up in real estate, uh, and he becomes uh, quite wealthy, very wealthy, very honest, uh, very straight, and he builds himself up in a straight and honest way, um, not playing any shtick, and um, and he becomes a prominent philanthropist, very giving to the community, to Valley Torah, to the Torah Semescheder, which I'm going to get to also, and he loved Taira, and he loved supporting everyone across the boards, Hasidic institution, the Mizrahi, yeshivas, Lakewood, even Beis HaTalmud. He helped fund the Beis Yaakov of L.A., which was the vision of his friend from the Haim, back from Hungary, Yankel Kassirer. They had come to L.A. together in the 1950s and were a part of an amazing group of Holocaust survivor individuals who built Orthodoxy and built the Torah community in L.A. despite the personal losses and the challenges they had gone through. And they're the ones responsible today for Orthodoxy, for Jewish education and the flourishing of Torah in L.A. And uh, they all went into real estate, and many of them became very successful, and they used their wealth to support and build the infrastructure, uh, as well as supporting uh, institutions around the world. Other ones, I mean, today one of the prominent philanthropists of L.A., Speaker Reisman, he's married to one of those families, to the Kornwasser family. Um, Shlomo Yehuda Rechnitz, who today is a very famous philanthropist, comes from one of those uh, survivor families as well. Of course, you have the Kest family is one of the largest philanthropists in supporting Torah institutions in LA and around the world. And these people and many others like them, and I'm not uh, leaving out anyone on purpose, um, but uh, many others like them were the uh, group of lay activists who uh, looked beyond themselves to be able to see for the benefit of the entire Jewish community. There are Hasidim who made it out to LA and they built Hasidic institutions. The the, um, the Halberstam Stiebel, the early 1950s in the L.A. Jewish community was growing, changing and expanding into other parts of the city. It was at this time in 1952, a fellow by the name of 
Reb Tzvi Halberstam. He settles in L.A. He opens a shul. He names it after the Atzei Chaim. Reb Chaim Tzvi Teitelbaum, the Segeta Rav, we mentioned in our recent uh, uh, episode about the Satmar Rav. Reb Tzvi Halberstam was obviously a descendant of the Divrei Chaim, but he's also the nephew of the Kleisenberger Rebbe. And... Uh, and he goes ahead, and he's related to the Satmarov, and Ertzi Halbishtam was close with his uncles, the Satmarov and the Kleisenberger Rebbe, and through their guidance and urging, moves out to L.A. and opens up this stable, becomes the center of Hasidus in Los Angeles. He had Achnas Asarachim and Chesed, and uh, many travelers and rabbis who who came to L.A. would stay by him. So he was one of the, uh, one of the pioneers. He was involved in the local yeshiva, and he was involved in building the base Yaakov. You had uh, Reb Isaacson, who was also related to Satmar, possibly even brother-in-law of one of the Satmar Rebbes, or I'm not sure, I didn't check into that relation. And he builds the Tyrus Emes Cheder, uh, first, uh, the first uh, Hasidic-oriented Cheder until today, prominent uh, um, elementary school in uh, in Los Angeles. And then you have, of course, L.A. can't have just mainstream Rebbes, so you have what Penny Dunner, uh, Rabbi Penny Dunner, made famous uh, recently. He was known before that in, in smaller circles, but the one who brought him to fame was Rabbi Penny Dunner, and he definitely gets the credit for that, was the Yabloner Rebbe, a scion of the uh, Majitz dynasty. And uh, like many other Polish Rebbes, he uh, was a was was very pro settling in in Israel and buying land and settling the land like you know like many other Kuznets and other rebbe's at the time of central Poland and he tried to start Kfar Hasidim and eventually he didn't work out and one of the only rebbe's and of course this could only happen in L.A. he leaves Yiddishkeit and settles down in Los Angeles and and lives a totally obscure not a rebbe not a Hasid not anything alone, depressed, and eventually goes to school, and, and a whole long story, which you could see by Penny Dunne really brought it out beautifully and nicely and very articulate, and, uh, but uh, Yablona Rebbe, not being a Rebbe, lives in, lived in L.A. for many, many years. So the, but this Reb Tzvir Shalbishtam, who I mentioned, he's buried in L.A., and he has one of the only ohels over his gravesite in the uh, Jewish cemetery. It's not very common to see an ohel in the L.A. cemetery, um, but uh, you also had Rameir Leifer, the Cleveland Rebbe, who was later lived in Williamsburg, but he happened to pass away in Los Angeles. He's also buried in in L.A. So you have uh, you have that uh, as well, the Cleveland Rebbe buried there. So of course, when you talk about Hasidus, you have Chabad, and Chabad is very very prominent, not just in L.A. but also in Southern California, not just in Southern California, but in all of California. Um, so you have. You have the sixth Rebbe who sends uh, Rebbe Menachem Reichik, who was an incredible person, uh, who studied at the Otvotsk uh, next to Warsaw. The beginning of the war, he escapes to Vilna, and then he gets a Sugihara visa to Japan. He goes to Kobe, Japan, with a group of Lubavitcher uh, Talmidim of the Taimchei Tamimim, and then he settles down in the Shanghai, where he studies in the Taimchei Tamimim Yeshiva of Shanghai, which was under the auspices of the rabbi, Rameer Ashkenazi, the Amshanov Rebbe was also involved, and then he moves to the United States. So he goes through the same route as the Mir Yeshiva, but he goes with Chabad, a smaller Yeshiva, but a important Yeshiva, with 30, 40 uh, students in Shanghai at the time, which is another story, and he becomes 
a shliach of the sixth Rebbe, the Friedeke Rebbe, the Rayats, uh, not, not, you know, really in the 1940s, one of the earliest shlichim, and his, his first shlichus is to go across America to spread Yiddishkeit, but then eventually he's sent to L.A., he's the first shliach there, and he dedicated his entire life to spreading Yiddishkeit in the area. In the 1960s and 70s, he would walk around Fairfax and other neighborhoods asking Jews to put on tefillin. And then, of course, in 1965, Rabbi Shloy Makunin, arrives in Westwood and becomes very part of UCLA and the, one of the first Chabads on a college campus. And he starts the Chabad Telephone, which uh, Bob Dylan was involved with, with through his religious Orthodox son-in-law, Peter, sort of son-in-law, Peter Himmelman uh, from Los Angeles, who's also a musician. And, uh, and, and Chabad becomes so prominent uh, in, in, uh, in Los Angeles, that there's not one but two replicas of 770 in um, in uh, in the LA area. So, you know, Lubavitch is huge in California. They're involved in LA Bezdin. They're involved with Hollywood, and uh, and uh, and but they, you know, because it because they're Lubavitch Hasidim, so they can't call it Santa Monica or Santa Barbara because that's Saint. So it's Simcha Monica, and that's what it becomes. It's renamed or rechristened, however you want to call it. One of the other shuls in L.A. also, a very typically L.A. shul. I remember when I, on my visit to L.A. with my uncles, so we went to, so we, you know, my uncles picked me up at the airport, and the first thing they greet me with is, you know, Yehuda, what goes on in California stays in California. And from there we went to Venice Beach to walk on the boardwalk there to see the remnants of the 1960s uh, hippie movement and many other exciting sites. So, there's actually a shul. We went to visit the shul there, the Pacific Jewish Center, on Venice Beach, literally. And it was founded by Rabbi Daniel Lappin, who was a nephew of Rabbi Lapian, or related to him somehow, and um, the radio personality Michael Medved. And that becomes a prominent uh, shul on the beach, I think. Um, oh, it's still active, as far as I know. Um, so one of the... the one of the one um, Later on, we come to the growth of... The yeshiva community. So we, today you have Reb Blazer Gross and the yeshiva Gedayla. Uh, I want to move back a little bit uh, before that, the development of it, even before the Lakewood Kail, which I'll get to also. is something interesting about Los Angeles. It's, like I said, the second largest Jewish community in the United States, one of the largest in the world. On the other hand, there's almost none. It's it's hard to count. I mean, some chwasman, it's hard to find, you know, High-level Gedele Yisrael who settled down there, or major yeshivas that took off and became successful and attracted uh, hundreds of students from out of town. Like you know, I mentioned at the beginning of the episode of Chaim Dev Keller in Chicago. You have that in a bunch of different cities in the United States, but LA didn't happen. You have um, in, the, in the in the in the modern Orthodox or in the yeshivish community, right? Um, Yula didn't take off like it was originally envisioned either. Which is fascinating, and uh, maybe it's something to do with the uh, with the you know the uh, with the way LA is and the you know the entertainment industry and and maybe I don't know, this, uh, but it's it's a it's a wild city, and it's Tinseltown. So, but Yeshiva Tervadas in the 1950s did attempt to build a yeshiva there. Shmuel Kamenetsky was actually sent there for a period of time, and of course, Rabbi Wasserman had an elementary school in the valley, and then a high school in the city, and he names it after his father, Oyer Elchanan, after Rabbi Elchanan Wasserman. And um, Chabad eventually got the building, but they had to keep the names. So it's a Chabad Hasidic Yeshiva that's called Or El Chana, named for Bachan and Vasuran. Also unique, and you know, in LA has some unique things. Rabnayach Orluek, the famous educator, studied by Rabsim Chawasim in Los Angeles. 
And there's some other prominent alumni, Dr. David Fox, who's still in Los Angeles, um, one of the closest Talmudim of uh, Rav Simcha Wasserman. Now, um, and uh, the, the Sir Abnayach, uh, excuse me, the Rav Simcha Wasserman is involved in Kirov, in an outreach to the larger community. You have also Rav Sholem Tendler, the third brother of uh, Ramesha David Tendler, of course, may he live and be well, and um, and and uh, and um, the Rabbi Yosef Tendler who passed away uh, from Baltimore, and they have the third ten- the third Tendler, the third brother, Rabbi Shalom Tendler, who who also may live and be well, um, who starts off first in Northern California. There was a an attempt at a Nerystral branch in in Northern California. Matthias Weinberg was there for a period of time, but but Rabbi Shalom Tendler moves down to L.A. and um, he's married to to a sister of Shimshon Pincus, and he first becomes the Rosh Hashiva of Eula. And the rabbi also of one of the local shuls, the North uh, North Beverly Hills Shul, which today is a Penny Dunner's Shul. But then he leaves Eula, he starts his own high school, um, and that and that becomes another prominent high school. Now you have a second high school, and the Yeshiva Gedalia becomes a third um, Yeshiva high school in the area. Now the Lakewood Kyle is is the kind of the transformation of the Yeshiva community. Rabbi Oscar Fassman's son was a founder. There were other people involved as well. Rabbi Nassim Vachtfeigl, the Meshkiach of Lakewood, was the one who, who was involved in sending them. Rabbi Sher, of course, was involved as well. Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky was involved in sending them as well, even though he was not in Lakewood. It was one of the first community coils in the United States of America. It started in 1975. And that was the beginning of the Yeshivish community. And one of the, my L.A. listeners uh, has so eloquently uh, articulated it. He said there's two parts of the history, Jewish community, history of the Jewish community in L.A. There's before the Kail and after the Kail. And um, even though there was Hasidim there before that, like I said, Tyrus Emes was before that. But the Lakewood Kail has a huge impact on the growth of the Yeshivish community. Later on, there is also a Hasidic Kail in the whole La Brea area. Rebarach Yehuda Graydon, of course, who was the Rosh Kail there for over 30 years, a British son-in-law of Rabbi Uri Hellman, the great Altamir, and part of the Amir Minyan Borough Park, and involved in Beis Yaakov Borough Park. So his son-in-law, Rabbi Uri Graydon, is, uh, it was, uh, you know, a very, a tremendous impact also on the yeshiva community. Rabbi Stephen Weil, in Beth Jacob, he hosts, hosted a satellite of the Lakewood Kail in Beth Jacob to open a second branch. Um, and this, uh, in a certain way, culminates in the visit, in the historic visit, even though it's so recent, but it, I, I think it's like a historic visit of uh, Rabbi Aaron Leib Steinman and the Gera Rebbe to L.A. in, in uh, 2006, a strong yeshiva community by that time, and they come to this all the way out west and uh, to spend some time in the L.A. Jewish community. Now, some other institutions in, uh, in, uh, in L.A., the Cedars-Sinai Hospital, uh, old roots with the old-time Jewish community at the turn of the century, um, it was built by Jews, and in the Biker Chaylam, which was which eventually merged with it, um, was involved in helping people during the 1919 uh, flu epidemic. Um, so it's a very prominent, preeminent hospital in, in the region today. Of a chaplain, Jewish chaplain, of a religious Jewish chaplain, or of a Jason Weiner, one of the uh, halacha experts in medical ethics. Um, another aspect of LA Jewish life is the amount of Persians, the Iranian Jewish community there. Now, it happens to be the amount of Iranians is both Jews and non-Jews ended up settling in L.A. Most, the most, the largest Iranian expat community in the world is outside Iran, obviously, is, is, uh, expat, is, uh, is, is in LA, is in Los Angeles. 
and most of the Jews are traditional. Rabbi Neuberger, who was so involved with the Iranians in Baltimore and from Iran, he even was able to bring Iranian Jews from L.A. Uh, to Ner Yisrael, and then back to L.A. to uh, strengthen the Iranian Jewish community. They have the Shul, the Netzach Shul, very prominent, and uh, Rabbi Shofit, the Chacham, the rabbi of the community, who's um, a very, uh, very large impact on the Iranian Jewish community. So you have that side, and like I said, you also have the Israelis. Now, of course, we can't uh, go on without mentioning the Los Angeles Dodgers, which is essentially a Jewish team because they came from Brooklyn, and they moved in 1958 from Ebbets Field in Brooklyn, d- destroying the lives of their many fans, Jews and non-Jews, in the Brooklyn area. Um, but uh, they moved to Los Angeles, together with their Jewish star from Brooklyn, Sandy Koufax, and the famous 1965 Noam Kipper pitching was in Los Angeles. It was not when they were on the Brooklyn Dodgers. And during that 1965 uh, series, he allegedly put on film. We don't know if he actually did, but a Chabad Shliach um, tried to convince him to put on film as some sort of skula to, to, uh, to, uh, to uh, win the World Series or to just be a better Jew. And, um, and that was... Uh, so the, the, the Dodgers, of course, have other Jewish connections uh, as well. But I, I want to speak a little bit, we're running out of time here. I want to speak a little bit about a very fascinating uh, facet of L.A. Jewish life, which sheds a lot of light on everything we've been saying until now. Um, there were two uh, country clubs, at least two, probably more, the Wilshire and the Riviera, which had a no-Jews-allowed policy back in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, like we had, we spoke about in the Five Towns episode and other places. So the Jews founded the Hillcrest Country Club, which is right now, today next to the Jewish community in Pico Robertson. And all the celebrity Jews went there. And it eventually came to a point that non-Jews tried getting in. And, you know, it was tough to get in. It's right, right outside Beverly Wood. It was founded in 1920. And it becomes legendary um, amongst the Jewish celebrities from the film industry, Jewish even more famously for the Jewish comedians, Groucho Marx and Jack Benny, George Burns was in love with the place. He came every day, even when he was old, in a wheelchair to play bridge at three o'clock. Milton Burley, who was a member of the Hillcrest Club for 70 years and many, many more. And that became a feature of Jewish life in L.A. Groucho Marx once uh, said that um, that he would never join a country club that allowed him as a member. But he joined this club, and it was so important to him, his, his membership in the club, that he willed his membership to his, his son. Um, and uh, and, and, and uh, you know, when, when Groucho tried getting into a non-Jewish club, they didn't allow him because they had a no-Jews-allowed policy. And since Groucho was married to a non-Jew, which is you know, another part of you know, the American Jewish story, as are many L.A. Jewish celebrities, including Spielberg himself, um, the, 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 so he asked, so they didn't allow him. So he said, can my daughter join because she's only half Jewish? Can she go into the, into the pool until the, uh, until her knees since she's half Jewish? And so that was, that was one of Groucho's, uh, sayings about it. Now, now they had, they, they were so Jewish that they, they used to call the country club a dining club that has a golf course. And they would sit around and hock. Uh, there was a Friday lunch there that all the Jewish comedians would come to Friday afternoon. And it was called the Hillcrest Round Table. They used to have fundraisers for the United Jewish Appeal and, uh, and other causes. And uh, in fact, 
one of uh, one of Groucho's sayings was um, was uh, was that the the that that as you may recall, I'm quoting it. As you may recall, the Hillcrest is the only country club in all of Greater Los Angeles that will accept Talmudic scholars such as myself as members, and uh, that in a way brings out the craziness of of uh, L.A. Um, as this celebrity city, as this entertainment town, and it brings out uh, the challenges of creating um, Orthodox Jewish life and a Yeshiva Jewish life in the city. And uh, you know the credit goes to the people who we who we just spoke about, you know, the the big survivor community, the post-war story of material success, and to a certain extent spiritual success uh, as well, more as a satellite of New York, but a lot of money, lots of giving, tons of philanthropy. We can't not mention the L.A. Jewish food places. You have the Jewish style food places, Nathan Al's, which is which is like uh, almost as fa- famous as uh, Sam's Delicatessen on on the Lower East Side. Nathan Al's, a breakfast place, which I heard just closed down. Rodeo Drive, legendary, historic, uh, um, you know, Jewish style food place. And then, of course, kosher food. Um, the one I remember most is Jeff's Sausages. I still dream about it and I could smell it and taste it um, from my one visit there. And they had Milky Way, which was owned by Steven Spielberg's mother, which was a kosher restaurant, and many other uh, features of L.A. Jewish life, which we'll have to either get to in a part two or just save uh, for another time. So this is Yehudi Geber with uh, Jewish History Soundbites. Uh, you can reach me at Yehuda at YehudiGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, virtual tours, and lectures, uh, online lectures, and um, sponsorships. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.